Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Show Midweek Motorsport News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello everybody and welcome to Midweek Motorsport. It is just after 8 o'clock on a Wednesday night. I'm John Hindorf live from Hindorf Towers. Uh, this is Series 10, Episode 33. Thank you, first of all. Uh, we do apologies for absence normally of an evening. Thank you for your messages of support and for your kind words over what has been a trying few days for everybody in the motorsport community. And so I can only uh, say again, thank you for everything uh, that has come through to us. Joe Bradley is here with us tonight. Good evening, Joseph. Hello, everyone. Uh, Joe will be in a theme that is developing over the last few weeks. Uh, Joe, as Shea was last week, Joe will be Nick Damon tonight. So, short tunes or anything? Does that mean I have to sing? I've heard you sing. I'd rather you didn't. Actually, I'd rather Nick didn't. be dancing. I mean, really, really dancing. dancing. Uh, I'd rather you didn't. Uh, we will have all the usual features on the show tonight, except without Tim Gray, because uh, Tim is otherwise engaged in his uh, day job this evening. Uh, we do have Twitter up, so at Midweek Motorsport or at Radio Le Mans. And uh, we've got a full show tonight with Graham Goodwin uh, joining us as well. And the... Uh, the show, as you might imagine, uh, starts, I'm afraid, on a uh, rather sombre note this evening. As uh, many of you will know, if you don't, I really hope I'm not the one who is telling you for the first time. But sad to say, a great friend of the programme uh, and current IndyCar driver, former sports car and Formula One driver and just all around good bloke Justin Wilson lost I'm afraid what was an unequal fight for his life after a truly bizarre and tragic incident at Pocono Raceway at the weekend when a piece of Sage Caram's car's bodywork was flicked up into the air and struck Justin uh, on the head he succumbed to his injuries earlier on this week of course our Condolences, thoughts and prayers go out to the ones who are left, his uh, mum and dad, Julia, and his two little girls, Stefan, his brother, all who were at uh, his bedside, all the major parts of his family at his bedside. Uh, And thanks to the motorsport community, and particularly Tony Stewart, who put a private plane at the disposal uh, of the family to get them to the hospital, as you me and know Marshall Pruitt was uh, very close to the guy I always used to call the tall bloke or the tall fella, even to his face. And a little bit earlier on today, I spoke to Marshall Pruitt. And by the way, his article on racer.com was uh, extraordinary uh, and captured the, uh, the, 
the real tone of, of Justin and how he'd been. I spoke to Marshall earlier on and just asked him about uh, just how much of a gap Justin Wilson's loss will be to not just the motorsport community generally, but to IndyCar in particular. Yeah, boy, Heidi, this has been a uh, it's been a rough couple of days. Um, underlined by the fact that for all those who love the big guy, who were affected or touched by the big guy, you know, there is a a sense, a strong sense running through, you know, through me and through many of the others I've spoken with, uh, Dario, who knew Justin since he was a lad. I mean, Dario uh, said he first met Justin in 1991. Uh, A.J. Allmendinger, who's teammates with Justin, uh, Rolex 24 Daytona winner with Justin. You know, everybody is just gutted, shattered by this. But I think we all have um, a very strong sense that this isn't about us, not by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we're, I, I know, you know you're going, everyone has heard, and I, I think we'll continue to hear a lot of loving words, a lot of uh, great stories about the big man. Uh, but if there's one takeaway for me, it's that, um, I, or one takeaway I would hope that resonates with everybody is uh, what really matters here uh, isn't the people on Justin's periphery. It's the people at the center, his wife, Julia, his two daughters, young daughters, uh, his brother, Stefan, his family, uh, and not just thoughts and prayers for them. If you're, you know, if you have faith in your life, um, prayer is certainly uh, never a bad thing, but, uh, maybe on the more substantial side, uh, there are some charity works in play to help support the family, uh, support the girls. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit later, Hindy. But no, talk about know, it now. Talk about it now. You know, just out of all this, uh, again, there's a lot of sorrow, but uh, I think that sorrow really has to be kept in check because uh, you know, for those who loved and cared for him, you know, we didn't lose a thing. The people who've really truly lost are the ones whose lives he was in charge of. Mm. The people that uh, the house, the 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 shelter that he put over his family, the the financial future. Uh, on the charity side, we have to uh, thank longtime, invaluable uh, Radio Le Mans Midweek Motorsport contributor Andy Blackmore, uh, whose helmet art, uh, Justin's uh, unmistakable lid, uh, has. <laughs> Uh, blanketed the world in about the last 48 hours, Hindy. Um, he did just a little, uh, a simple, well, I don't mean simple in a dismissive way, but he did a, uh, I just asked him, hey, mate, could you uh, use that and do a little tribute sticker for me? I just want to have some made just to give out to some, you know, friends and drivers in the paddock. Uh, IndyCar reached out, asked for that artwork. NASCAR has reached out and asked for that artwork. Uh, I, I mean, I, we could spend 10 minutes running down the list of series um, and individuals that have reached out and asked for it who are going to have some printed uh, where we should see Formula One drivers with memorial stickers on their helmets, uh, NASCAR, on down. Uh, the best part about that, Heidi, is uh, the the official sticker, not some of the private ones, but the official sticker that IndyCar has made with help from uh, their graphic designer, and Andy and Andretti Autosport, uh, that is going to be sold by IndyCar. I don't know the price. 
and I don't have the link yet. That will be coming shortly. But uh, that will be sold. All proceeds, 100% of the proceeds, will go to the uh, Wilson Daughters Fund, which IndyCar has established. And they are going one step further in creating a memorial T-shirt. Again, I haven't seen it. I just know that it's coming. That will be for sale. All of those proceeds will go. Uh, it's all in the spirit of Justin was the best of us, but he wasn't someone who drove for Roger Penske for 10 years yeah. and, and, and had a massive bank account built up. Uh, he was, you know, drove for many smaller teams, had great success, but uh, Justin was not someone who, uh, unlike some of our other friends in IndyCar, uh, you know, profited massively year after year. Um, and so as a result, uh, we have a situation where his family does actually need help because the person who supported them is no longer here. The last thing I'll mention very quickly, Heidi, is uh, Graham Rahal, who uh, you may remember organized a uh, donation and charity um, structure when Dan Weldon died. Uh, they had uh, online auctions that raised, I forget what the number is, Heidi, but it was hundreds of thousands of dollars. And uh, Graham should have some news here in the next couple of days about some. Uh, he's done something, uh, doing something similar for Justin, who was one of his teammates. Um, and uh, I'll leave that for him to fully reveal. But the, the list of names that he mentioned that have reached out from other sports saying, how can we help? We're going to be the advocate to push this charity forward to do the same kind of fundraising for the family. Uh, it's really heartwarming, Heidi. Everyone's coming together realizing that uh, there's a wife, two little girls left behind. Which is only what we'd expect because we know it never ceases to amaze me. I don't know why I keep getting um, surprised by this, but the motorsport family is a family globally. It doesn't matter what series uh, or what part of the world. I've always said this in the past when we've lost friends, that you can go on to Wikipedia, you can go onto the driver database, Marshall, and you can look at the stats, and they tell part of the story. Absolutely, of course they do. said this when, when Dan died. That tells part of the story, but it never tells the full story. And for people who aren't acutely embedded in the sport and, and, and in the paddock, the individual paddock, in fact, of the people who we lose, they it's difficult to explain just how much of a loss Justin is because aside from the fact that nobody's got a bad word for him and we should say that right out um, and nobody ever has had because the word gentle and giant if you look that up in the dictionary there's a picture of Justin Wilson next to it but his influence on the IndyCar paddock was much greater than just being a driver and I'm not sure how many people outside the very close parts of the sport MP actually realised that yeah, it's different. I mean, you and I, Heidi, we were together, and I'm really thankful you were there when uh, we lost Dan at Las Vegas in 2011. And you can't really, you can't rank these things. You can't, well, I guess you could try, but uh, I'd love to meet the person who thought that was a good thing to do in life. But you can't really rank the loss of one driver, one person over the other, Um in this but case, I, one I get, friend against another as well. That's another thing. He's, these, those two guys had a lot of friends. Yeah, and but I guess you can say there are definite differences, and that's one thing we, we've I've noticed and I've spoken with some of uh, Justin's friends and teammates, and they've said the same thing in the last couple of days. And these are all people who are incredibly close to Dan Weldon too. Dan was a little brother. He was a little punk, the little 
you know, arse <laughs> who uh, just, you know, loved to wind you up was, you know, he was the life of the party, this little, you know, a, a beacon of, of everything. You love the guy. No, that, he was he was kind of the impish character, wasn't he? he as you say, a, a little brother, Justin, very different character and and perceived very differently in the in the paddock as well. And that's where I think Justin's loss is. That's why I think Justin's loss is is hitting so many people uh, in such a different way. Again, this isn't ranking bigger, more, less, worse. Uh, Justin was kind of the foundation of the IndyCar paddock from the driver's side. Um, this is someone who the how's this? He was the leader among leaders. He was the person that Indy 500 winners, multiple series champions, they looked to him for guidance. They looked to him with the IndyCar Drivers Association, for example. He was voted by them, the people with these big rings and, and the, the CVs that are just overflowing, overflowing with um, records and achievements. They looked to him to lead them, uh, was voted to be the, the head of the IndyCar Drivers Association over and over again. When they had a problem, when they had something they wanted addressed, when they needed someone to go stick the boot in wherever it belonged with IndyCar or the, a track if they felt there was something unsafe, whatever it was, they sent Justin. And that, that to me, is, is very telling uh, when you say how many people in the current field and all the things they've achieved, when they elevate a guy who hasn't won the Indy 500 – who doesn't have an IndyCar championship, yet they consider him to be their finest representative, the best voice, uh, the person with the best head on, their sh on his shoulders, but also the character and the conviction and, and the willingness to push uh, and work on their behalf. I mean, you know, th there's no trophy that could be created that speaks to the esteem uh, in which he was held. So I think that that part's very telling. Um, I'd also say that he is definitely someone where you hear the stories about how nice he was, how you know no one ever said a bad word about the guy. No one, you know, uh, all true. Uh, I would just say, and you know, I'm sorry if it sounds funny, but you'd say the same thing about, you know, the greeter at the front door uh, of the local Walmart, or you know, you say the same thing about a librarian. Oh, it's the nicest person. Never, you know, almost sounds like you're talking about your grandma, or your grandpa, and those things were true. You know, Justin was the sweetest, nicest guy. No one's ever said a bad thing about him, but you know, the reality is. Uh, there was a lot more to him. People didn't love him because he was nice. They didn't love him because he was so warm. Uh, they loved him because he was a stand-up guy. Uh, he was a guy who would stand up, represent everybody, while on probably shakier ground than most of them, right? He yeah. wasn't exactly driving for Ganassi. He didn't have a, a five-year contract paying him zillions of dollars and feeling the you know the weight of security behind him to say, hey, F you and go to hell. And, I mean, so 
you think about the situation, right? And you go, well, huh, Justin's actually the guy who's driving for Dale Coyne or Dennis Reinbold yep. or some of these smaller teams yet was willing to do that. So, again, I, I know it's maybe more of a general observation, Heidi, but within the paddock, within IndyCar, and this is not just the drivers. This is with the crew members, the engineers yeah. worked with him, the mechanics. Uh, they'll all tell you that, wow, that guy was kind of the gold standard. There's an irony that his hashtag was badass because <laughs> outside of the car, he was anything but. He always had a word for everybody. And you've seen the Midweek Motorsport Listeners Collective Facebook with people's remembrances of Justin and as you rightly say, every single one of them, you go, yeah, that's the bloke. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's him as well. I can imagine him doing that. It's th- There's not one of those things, however outlandish, however, my goodness, he was on the way to a driver's meeting. He still had time for someone. Wow. But with Justin, that was just kind of what you expected. So to have the hashtag badass was was an irony, but there, was very, there were very few people in a car, Marshall, who were... Harder races, but ultimately very fair races. He didn't like the Bumpman and Boren. He didn't engage in it. And he wouldn't even get involved in trash talk around it. You could say he did things the right way, wouldn't you, Heidi? Um, oh, him I mean, in, yeah. You can all... You can always tap into your, your baser sensibilities. You know, you can always... Uh, you can always kick someone uh, in their nether regions to gain an advantage, but uh, if you're going to win, wouldn't it be more satisfying and more memorable to do it in in a stand-up, face-to-face way? And uh, that's another thing that he did. Uh, Thinking about, again, uh, this... You look at the crash that Sage Karam had that uh, sent the bodywork flying that ultimately struck Justin and uh, you know, of the million different things that flash through one's mind. One of them was on this topic, Heidi, that um, Sage is the exact person, the exact driver in IndyCar that would benefit from modeling himself after Justin. He doesn't, or he hasn't. He's young. He's really young. He's gotten by on talent and bravado, like so many other young drivers have. Not singling him out or saying he's doing anything bad or unique to other young drivers, but you know, that he's got the swagger and bravado of a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old yeah. in IndyCar driving for Chip Ganassi. And it, but it did it did stand out that uh, unfortunately Sage and Justin are now linked in a way they n- never would have wanted to have been, but. Uh, when I think of Sage, uh, his lack of age and the lack of maturity that comes with it, and think of the outbursts, whether it's on social media or you know in print, in interviews, bickering and feuding with an Ed Carpenter or whomever, uh, I, I just think, hey, wouldn't it be cool if uh, someone uh, or if many people continue to point out to Sage, hey, uh, why not try Justin's way? Why not pick up how to carry yourself with class and dignity, even when the thing that angers you the most might have happened? Uh, I remember it last year at Long Beach, uh, Justin 
tangled with, I think it was Scott Dixon. I apologize if I'm wrong, but they tangled. Justin was out of the race. Before that, I, I think Graham Rahal might have spun him out uh, unintentionally, but nonetheless, it uh, didn't help. After the race, Justin was mad. Justin was really mad because he had the potential of maybe a win, a podium, something uh, through a couple of interactions that went absolutely sideways, wrecked out of the race. After the race, you know, he had every right if he wanted to to go and yell and fight and scream and uh, just happened to be, you know, following him when he walked over to Graham's trailer um, and spoke with Graham. And you know what I didn't see? I didn't see arms waving and fingers pointing and MFing and shouts and whatever. I saw someone who was angry. His face was definitely, you know, uh, a little, a little uh, sunken. But I saw him discuss, saw him talk, saw him interact and connect, not through a tweet, not through a text, man to man. I'm talking to you as an adult. I'm sharing my thoughts. We d- might not see eye to eye, but I'm holding myself to that standard. Um, I think the Sage Carums, the young kids, again, who get by at this stage on uh, aggression and chest pounding uh, beyond the driving part, beyond all the things that made Justin exceptional in the car, uh, boy, he, he is a lesson on how to conduct oneself, uh, oneself as a professional and with dignity. Marshall Pruitt speaking to me a little earlier uh, on today. And I think speaking for all of us when he was describing someone that he knew very well, of course, Justin Wilson, uh, who was killed or died of his injury, should I say, after the accident at Pocono. Graham Goodwin, a daily sports car, joins us uh, tonight on Midweek Motorsport. Uh, Joe Bradley is with us as well. Gentlemen, uh, moving stuff from Marshall, and I recommend everybody to read his piece on racer.com. I started a... A thread for remembrances of of Justin Graham on uh, Midweek Motorsport on the Collective on Facebook. And I'm not going to read every one of them, but this is absolutely uh, a perfect summation from it, from uh, Ed Hughes. So, Ed, I hope you don't mind me reading this out. He says, everyone has their favourites that they wanted to see win or do well. But when Justin won, I beat them. I always thought, hey, that's fantastic that he did this. He was always the sort of guy that you said, good on you, mate, about. He says, I'm sad, but I'm richer for better and better for watching his exploits. He was the man that nobody disliked, Graham. Nobody. Um, and I think my little contribution, it was a very little contribution. I, I didn't know Justin well at all. I'd met him maybe three or four times. Just before we go any further, that was stunning stuff from Marshall. Um, and uh, I'm sure the big man's listening. Uh, everybody's really not just for... Justin's family and and Marshall was quite correct to put that first and foremost but for his many friends and I know Marshall was particularly close to Justin of all the drivers he knows well so we're feeling for you buddy Um, but nobody nobody had a bad word for the man and and what was interesting was that when anybody talked about Justin Wilson the first thing the first thing they say about him was about his character yes it was about the way he was as a man uh, as well as a race driver and I I think that speaks extraordinarily highly of anybody that operates in as intensive an environment as professional motorsport, John. Um, it's a very, very sad um, sad thing, a very sad week. Uh, Joe Bradley, you 
competed against Justin, or at least somebody <coughs> you looked after a few years ago when Justin was starting his career. Brian Hornby, good friend of ours, sadly mm-hmm. also no longer with us, died in a car crash um, several years ago now. You were spannering in a kart team against the we tall were, fella. We were um, we were running the British Junior Championships back in, it'll have been about 91, I think. Um, and a lot of what Marshall said and a lot of, uh, a, a lot of what has been said about Justin Wilson's character, let's not forget this is an Englishman. This is a, a South Yorkshire lad. And that's why I think he was so likable because he never lost that. It doesn't matter that he was a, a resident and citizen of uh, a resident of the United States. He was still a South Yorkshire lad from Sheffield. I first came across Justin as he'll have been a 14, 15 year old. He was a gangly kid who we were competing against, who was one of our main competition. And I remember going into the last round. I'm sure, you know, Justin was one of four drivers who could have uh, won the championship. We came second, Michael Simpson won, and I'm sure Justin was third in the championships that year. But all, you know, throughout that year, he was, you know, this gangly kid who were, we were up against. And, and all the drivers, the kids who we were who we were spannering for, they would all just muck around and, and play with each other and uh, ride their bikes around the paddock and, <laughs> uh, whilst, um, you know, on a night while we went to the circuit bar. Um, and then, of course, John, we remember him when he first came into sports cars. Yes, we did. Um, and when he first appeared in the American Le Mans series. And I kind of, being a pit lane reporter back then, you, you naturally gravitated towards the English and British drivers who were making an appearance and trying to forge a career over there. And this was this was prior to his F1 career. And I know what Hornby is going to be saying up there right now as they sit down and reminisce about those days in Super 1 karting. He's going to be saying, oh, so how the hell did you get to Formula 1 then? Um, you know, when I beat you, to set, I beat you to the British Championship, I came <laughs> ahead of you in the British Championships back then. Um, but a lovely fellow. It's just, you know what, John it, uh, and Graham, it it just reminds us that out the sport, the passion that we have is also this. And I don't think you could ever, I don't know how we're ever going to get around that. Yes, we strive to make the sport safer in all ways. And we should not stop in that strive, in that striving to, to make the sport safer. But I, I'm not really sure we could ever make it uh, truly unsafe. Um, completely that, safe. You mean. Completely safe. Yeah. Well, um, there is. Sam Collins has said this in the past. You have um, self-driving cars with nobody at the track. But that's but not then being what... a race driver. Exactly. That's, been, that's driving a car remotely. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I don't think this is the time or the place, uh, and we're probably not the people either, to discuss the implications of the accident. That's for people with bigger brains and bigger paychecks uh, than us. Um, I, I do want just to point out to those who perhaps didn't know uh, and frankly if you'd watched the news in the UK and I'm, I'm sorry to get on this high horse again you would thought that all Justin had ever done was uh, driven for a couple of Formula 1 teams uh, and nothing else um, he was an a, he was an accomplished sports car driver Graham Goodwin won yep. the Rolex 24 Daytona good results at Sebring raced at Le Mans of course in 2004 s- sadly for me in a black and white car which meant that <laughs> I, I rather I told him beforehand if you're wearing black and white on your overalls mate I can't really talk to you and he took that in good part exactly as you would expect him to he was actually a very very versatile driver indeed it was, and and you know, for those I think like you and many others who were irritated by the kind of the, some of the mainstream media dipping in, 
uh, I heartily recommend a number of excellent pieces from people who did know Justin well. We've mentioned Marshall Pruitt's piece. It's extraordinary. David Malsher and uh, and also Robin Miller on Racer.com, also uh, very, very good pieces. Simon Strang on Autosport.com, his piece I thought was just absolutely lovely. Great. And, and also Tony Dezino, uh, I think, on NBC. Um, and uh, you can see the links. Uh, have a look at uh, Tony's Twitter feed. Uh, they're the ones that, if you want to know what this guy was really like, they're the ones to read. Forget the rest of it. Read those. That will tell you all you need to know about Justin Wilson, the man, his career, and the character behind it. And it's it it, it is the John. You and I have both had the 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 kind of um, the, the bad fortune, and you too, Joe, to talk about and to write about. Um, these things when they happen it is extraordinarily difficult to do it and you know you could hear the raw emotion breaking through with Marshall and quite right too Um, but what it does tend to bring out is that it tends to mean in this pressured world that those that really do give us stuff take the time to get it right there's four people that got it right this time the the fact that he was a leader of men in the paddock, I think, might be a surprise to some people. Uh, Marshall uh, was right to to bring that up. Um, our thoughts uh, clearly with the family now, and there is, as a number of people have mentioned on Twitter, um, there is uh, a fund for uh, Justin and uh, Julia's girls. Uh, if you haven't got all the details, they're on the collective, they're on the Twitter feed, there's T-shirts, the stickers. Uh, Andy Blackmore has been involved, um, and as have uh, Jason Plato and uh, ESM Stracker, Alan McNish. So around the world uh, this weekend, there'll be an awful lot of people in NASCAR, in IndyCar, in GRC, who will be sporting the helmet decal. Uh, for for Justin and as I say, you uh, you can help out the girls. I think it was a good point that Marshall made about him not being in one of the glory teams. Uh, so if there is something that you'd like to do on a principled level and get yourself a T-shirt or a sticker or just make a donation, all of the details are on the World Wide Web. In fact, Justin's own Twitter feed has uh, still got that running. I, I thought. Um, of all of the things that I've heard a couple of people have struck me of being really sensible uh, and Marshall was kind enough to fire me some uh, audio from Graham Rahal earlier on uh, about how he saw this of course comes from uh, a teammate and a competitor down the years to the tall fella uh, Graham Rahal talking uh, earlier today about Justin Wilson well the war- um, a tweet this morning that I that I thought was the perfect tweet that said between Jill Villeneuve, Greg Moore, and Justin Wilson, there are only 18 wins combined. But the significance of a man that we lost isn't defined by the number of wins. It's by who he is. And we lost a man that is far greater than an Indianapolis 500 champion or anything like that. We lost a guy who was the epitome of a, of a good man, the epitome of a family man, of a great teammate, and a guy to which, in every aspect of life, was competitive, fierce, 
but always fair and somebody who really I feel extremely honored and, and very, very fortunate to have competed against. There's certain guys that it's fun to compete against. There's certain that there's not. And, and the guys that are fun, Justin leads that class. You know, he, he was just, uh, you know, I think the fans saw it. I think, you know, he was, uh, he was a guy who raced, continued to race, worked very hard to get his ride because he loved it. He was passionate about this. And, you know, I wish, uh, I, I just, I wish there were more guys like him. I mean, there's a lot of guys I know that are great competitors who have made a lot of money in this sport but will never, ever be, have the heart and the kindness that, that Justin Wilson did. And that's, uh, you know, that's, that's the hardest thing to lose. I, I still don't know that I've seen anybody that ever drove cars as average as we drove in 08 and got as much out of it as he did. I just don't think people appreciate um, his talent, you know, what he had, what he could bring to the table and offer, uh, and the effect that he had on others, you know. I mean, I don't care who you talk to. They're all going to tell you he was he was the best teammate they've ever had. I mean, just just the fact. So, the reason. so what makes people, what makes people great, typically, typically, is selfishness. Michael Schumacher, always an incredible driver, but it was built solely around him. Tario Franchitti, incredible driver. But when I was a teammate, very much a selfish person. Didn't, which is fine. That's what made him great. Justin Wilson was great in a very different way, if that makes sense. And I don't say selfish as in that that's bad, but that's what made... I mean, look at Tiger Woods. Everybody hits on Tiger Woods as being a jerk. Well, he, he's not. He's just very focused on what he needs himself to be successful. So, anyway, that's... That, you know, that's what I always appreciate about Justin. Is he didn't just look at me as competition, as a teammate. He looked at me as a guy that I think he felt... He could mold for the future. How could he help me? How could he help his team? And, and his team isn't just, in his case, the O2 car. It was the O2 and O6. You know, and that's what I, I felt always made him tremendous. I'm sure Hunter Ray would tell you the same right about now. That's Graham Rahal talking to Marshall Pro of Racer.com uh, earlier on. We shouldn't forget either, Graham Goodwin, that it's... Justin was an absolute pioneer. Long before the words uh, crowd and funding oh, yeah. came together, he sold shares in himself. That's how how driven he was to get him to Formula One. And I'll tell you how driven he was and how persuasive he was. Tiffany Dell bought shares, and I've worked with Tiff, and I know how hard <laughs> it is for him to put his hand in his pocket even when he should do. And Tiffany uh, Dell bought shares. Tiff, I'm sorry, but I had to bring that up. Uh, Tiffany Dell bought shares in, in Justin Wilson. He persuaded... Paul Stoddard to rebuild the Minardi around him to get him in because he couldn't fit in the original one and that's what stalled his Formula 1 career and they'd made a change to the design Paul Stoddard demanded that they, that it gave him a go and, and that gentleman and Joe particularly in the uh, the auspices of Formula 1 that was quite remarkable yeah that's right he wasn't exactly 
the, the, the right shape to be a, a single-seater driver, was he? He was, <laughs> he really he was, was far good. too tall. And I'm sure that's what he would say to Hornby now is why Hornby beat him in carts. Uh, because Hornby was a little lad and Justin was this thing that had a sort of steer through his knees kind of thing because he was such a tall kid for 15. Mm. Um, I saw point... some pictures earlier on this week, actually, Graham, of... Uh, of Justin with Dan Weldon and there was literally two feet difference in height when they <laughs> yes. were were carting at 14 uh, and, is, and 15. John, you, you were saying about that, not calling it what it was, that, that very early crowdfunding effort. Yeah, it wasn't just a crowdfunding effort. It was a successful crowdfunding effort. Yes, it and was. again, take a look at that, um, that, um, that discussion thread on Facebook that you put up at the beginning of the week. And there's at least a couple of people there that are relaying their memories of meeting Justin years after they invested and still years after had the time to, to stop, give time, give thanks. Um, it's, yeah, it, yeah, words fail me at a time like this. Words fail me. You know, you don't want to say things like it's always the good ones. Uh, it's it's a very packed thing to say, but but the the outpouring of of real sentiment here, I think, tells the story. Um, we've lost a good one. Really? We've lost a very good one. But I, I think what we've got to settle with, guys, is whenever something like this happens in our sport, people aren't there under duress. They are doing something that they are passionate about. Justin, for instance, has been doing this since he was a small child, literally. In fact, was he ever a small child? I don't think he was a small. He's been doing this ever since he was a tall child. Um, (laughs) And, you know, people are killed in motorsport and people will continue to be killed in motorsport, unfortunately. But I think the the, the thing that, that makes it easier for me is that I know he was killed doing something that he absolutely loved. And... If you'd said to him, you don't have to say to these guys, there is a risk factor. They know that. They're fully aware of that fact. That doesn't stop them donning the helmet and getting into the car. Mm. Um, and that is the way that you've just got to settle with it, really. It's, he, 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 you know, he did it racing. Well, let's say just one quick thing. One thing you do tend to get on occasions like this, is people dig deep into the archive. And there's been yep. some spectacular stuff around. Oh. I think Marshall retweeted or reposted uh, a bit of uh, footage from the first qualifying session in Formula One uh, in the Jaguar, I think it was, where Justin out-qualified Michael Schumacher. Um, but the one that I thoroughly enjoyed this afternoon, watched it twice, was a cadet kart race, uh, which the leading pack featured... The following, Anthony Davidson. Well, there you go. Anthony Davidson and Justin Wilson. There's two extremes in mm. virtual terms. Uh, Jensen Button and Dan Weldon. And actually, Charlie Butler Henderson getting involved. And I think actually getting nerfed off at one point by... Uh, by Wasn't it Felton, uh, was it? They all... it might, might well have been. It was a cracking race, as we said. Absolutely blinding 80 race. 80cc Coma Carts. That was where Joe and I started our commentary careers. There you go. Believe but, it or uh, not. You know, th- there's, mm. a, there's a foursome to conjure with. And, you know, those guys will be feeling it as well. Oh. I mean, it's um, sad. And, you know, we go from here, guys, to another racetrack, another world-class uh, motorsport event. And uh, whilst part of me, my heart, heart soars to go and rejoin the kind of the WEC family this weekend, you just know that the, the biggest topic of conversation is going to be exactly what we're talking about now. It is part of the racing world, however, gents, that... Races race and racing will go on 
and we'll all miss Justin and as I say we pass on our condolences thoughts and prayers to his close family and his many many friends in the IndyCar paddock it is the IndyCar finale this weekend as I said I wasn't going to we're not going to debate now the the rights and wrongs of open cockpit open wheel racing that's not what it's there but there is a championship to be won uh, at the weekend and we wish everyone a safe race at Sonoma and if we're going to finish up talking about IndyCar here which we are Graham Rahal was also kind enough to give us some thoughts on the championship at the weekend and the differences between Honda and Chevy this year he is the leading Honda runner and he's still very much in with a chance of the championship double points remember this weekend so it's all on the line this weekend at Sonoma it's had its ups and downs had its challenges obviously Fontana or I mean uh, Pocono you know uh, Detroit race one you know, getting collected and stuff that wasn't necessarily our fault is, is, is a frustrating aspect of racing, but but we're here. You know, we have an opportunity this weekend. We've got, uh, we, we have the ability, I feel, and we have the, the opportunity to go win a championship and to take the fight to the big boys. But I, again, you know, I look back and I, and I think and I say what it highlights and what it proves when you look at Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan versus Team Penske, you're talking 25 employees versus or 20 employees versus 400 some. You're talking uh, no wind tunnel testing, no shaker rig testing versus in-house wind tunnel, in-house shaker rig. You know, you're talking a big difference, but. It's the people that you have that can make a team click, and that's really why we have gotten to where we are, and I'm, I'm extremely proud of them. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I take a lot of pride in it, you know. I mean, look, we haven't been there that often, so I don't want to sound like, you know, that, that, that this has been a – I mean, this year it's been common that we've been the one tank, but, but in the past, Hunter A, other guys have done the job. So, you know, as I, as I look at it, you know, we're, we're pretty lucky uh, – through hard work that we've gotten ourselves into this spot. And I can tell you that nobody's giving up now. Nobody's losing, you know, any hope. We're 34 points back. But we really do believe, we feel um, that we have a great chance this weekend. I mean, if we win, uh, I believe Montoya has to finish third. And so we're looking at this weekend as a must-win scenario. You know, if we go out there and win, we're going to be looking pretty good. So, you know, um, it, it's 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 been a great year, and we're proud to, to fly the the big Honda H, and and um, I really hope that we can do you know I really hope that we can get it for them you know for Yamada San and John Mendel and and Art and everybody that's you know been putting a lot of effort uh, time money everything else into this thing I I hope we can uh, do it. Graham Rahal talking about a championship that will be decided this weekend, most likely between him, Scott Dixon and Juan Pablo Montoya. A championship, sadly, that won't uh, see the uh, big fella, Justin Wilson, racing, but he will be knocked for, I'm sure, from everybody's thoughts. A lot of people talk tonight about the unselfish gesture from the family as well. I'm from Justin. He was a organ donor card holder, and he's... Uh, organs have saved at least six lives that we have been uh, told about and a number of you saying that it's made you think about it and uh, made you think about signing up for one um, if 
you do nothing else today uh, other than do that and sign up, then you'll be honouring the big fella. Justin Wilson, who sadly uh, succumbed to his injuries earlier this week after that uh, very tragic and bizarre accident at Portland at the weekend. You're listening to Midweek Motorsport. It's Series 10, Episode 33. Graham Goodwin and Joe Bradley are with us. The, our sport moves on, gentlemen, and Graham, you already uh, touched on the uh, return to full-scale uh, racing this weekend for the World Endurance Championship. It's been a very long time since Le Mans, uh, and it is time to get back started again. Yeah, it feels like an awfully long Long time, doesn't it? And I'm uh, just sitting here now, making final prep for to leave for the Nurburgring tomorrow morning, and writing up a, a few notes about, uh, you know, what to expect when we get there in terms of some uh, some minor changes to the grid, uh, a few new faces, one or two people that won't be there this weekend, waiting for confirmation of, um, well, one reason why we won't see one driver. And I think that's something we'll come to a little later, talking about Pushgate, I'm sure. Uh, but, yeah, I think we're looking forward, John, to, you know, another hopefully fantastic six hours of action uh, come Sunday um, with the, you know, the LMP1 guys duking it out once again and, and battles in every class. Uh, sadly, on the Grand Prix version of the track, not the uh, shorter version that we see uh, without say- the... I'd say sensibly of the Grand Prix track. No, no, no. But uh, sorry, there's two different versions of the Grand Prix track, and, and the version we use on the the 24 with the S's rather than the big yeah. loop in the first corner is by far my favourite iteration of that circuit. Um, however, um, it will be the the more usual FIA Grand Prix. So, where's the changes, Graham? It's been so long. Let, just remind us who's doing what to whom in the classes. It's in the GT classes, GTE Pro and Am in the GTE uh, Am class. Uh, Aston Martin's leading. It, is it still the? It was the Lamy. Um, uh, it's the Lamy. Uh, the Lamy car was leading it. Now you've caught me because that's uh, that's the next job. I thought you were going to go at it the other way around. All right. So I'm going to have to go back and, and double check. That's no, all right. Start but, uh, the front of the you, field. I then. can tell you a little bit about some driver uh, some driving yeah. news, John. Uh, I can happily tell you uh, that against expectations, there will be no change um, in one of the lineups in GTEM because Roel Goethe will be racing this weekend. Yes, I saw that. Uh, which is great news after eight. <laughs> Massive, immense uh, accident for Roald at the Le Mans 24 Hours, about which I'm sure there will be some consequences. Um, the answer, by the way, because <coughs> of that um, almost last-minute shunt for Paul De Lana, that car, by the way, falls from leading the class to fourth in the order, uh, because with double points for the win, it's the 72 car in GTM, the SMP Racing uh, Ferrari 458 that now leads ahead of the second Ferrari, the 83 car, the Collard Perotto uh, Rui Aguash car. Then it's the uh, Dempsey, I nearly said Dempsey mate piece, Dempsey Proton uh, <laughs> car. It's with, going to uh, be that forever in my is. head. Uh, there you go. Uh, Marcus Seafried, uh, Patrick Long, and uh, who's that other bloke? Patrick Dempsey um, uh, are third in the standings, but pretty close third, uh, second, third, fourth. Uh, in the standings, but that uh, SMP car, if it now gets a steady run through the rest of the season, it's going to be pretty tricky to actually beat that car. But it is, as you were, 
in GTM. In GTE Pro, couple of changes, both of them for Aston Martin, uh, because the 97 car will see Johnny Adam join the regular duo of Stefan Mucker and Darren Turner. Uh, we are, however, missing from the 95 car, Nicky Team. And now this mm. is the one that I'm waiting for confirmation of, because I hear from a colleague that we may be hearing that Nicky Team might be racing in the DTM. And why? Well, I think we're going to come to that, aren't we? Ah. In just a few moments. Okay, we'll talk about that after uh, after nine o'clock. Uh, no changes at the sharp end of the field. Uh, obviously, we're aware that Nissan. We're not going to see Nissan until the last couple of rounds uh, of the season. They are continuing to develop and uh, try and fill that power gap left by the uh, non-correct functioning or non-functioning. Uh, hybrid systems uh, on the uh, GTRLM, so it is Toyota versus Porsche versus Audi. It is in front uh, of the field. And uh, there's one one guy I completely forgot to mention. Of course, it's a GTM driver, uh, but uh, of a very different sort because it's overall Le Mans winner Earl Bamba will Correct. be joining the uh, the number 88 car this weekend with Klaus Backler otherwise engaged, which he right. literally only found out uh, last. Tuesday or Wednesday, we did a, um, at a at a Porsche dealer at Leith Porsche at Cary in North Carolina, and had literally just found out about that. And he found out by reading the press release on DailySportsCar.com, <laughs> which I well, thought was quite funny. Well, here, well, here's an unusual one. What we're going to see this week, I think, might well be completely unique. I can't remember this. Well, almost ever. totally and completely unique. Almost totally and completely unique. Um, which is two of the three winning drivers at Le Mans. And by the way, uh, Nick Tandy, who'll be in LMP2 this weekend, sits second in the driver standings at the moment, I believe. Yes. Uh, courtesy of points for in LMP1 for Porsche and points LMP2 for KCMG. Um, the, uh, the uniqueness here, though, is that two overall winners of Le Mans will both be in this race, but neither of them will be in LMP1 cars. Correct. So yeah. uh, the only the only winner that we're not going to see is Nico Hulkenberg, who's in one of those support series at some point later. But um, but no, t- at the top of the field, uh, John. The one significant uh, addition I think we should uh, we should note is that it will be the six-hour racing debut of the Rebellion AERs because, of course, they made their debuts in re-engine format Le Mans. They've not so far competed over six hours in LMP2. Uh, well, there's a couple of changes. We won't be seeing the 35 uh, Ligier from Oak Racing. And that car gives it a miss, but we'll be back for the flyaways. We will see the WC points scoring debut of the Gibson chassis because Stracker bring their newly acquired Gibson to the fray. And that looks as if that might well be an immediate contender. And uh, one minor piece of driver news minor piece of driving news is that we'll be seeing Archie Hamilton aboard the um, the Saad Morand Morgan Evo and I think um, Archie plus uh, Oliver Webb and uh, Pierre Rag could well be a bit of a force to be reckoned with there but uh, there that's a battle at the moment between the KCMG car which leads to point standings uh, although rather oddly uh, despite what I've just said, not with Nick Tandy uh, in the driver standings, because, of course, he missed Spa and he missed Le Mans, so he's way down. Um, but the, uh, the well, I think they'd like to be dubbed the new British boy band in KCMG, the uh, Matt House and Richard Bradley and Nick Tandy, uh, now dubbed Wrong Direction um, and not taking a sabbatical, uh, leading the point standings for uh, KCMG ahead of both of the G-Drive cars in the order 28 and 26 with the rest 
the best of the rest, uh, more than a race wins points behind. So lots to battle for. Um, I think I'm right in saying, John, that what we've got leading into the race is a little bit of rain for the first day of practice but after that clear skies throughout um it could be a race with a lot of pace and i cannot wait mm. to get the headset on and talk about it uh snappy john says you mentioned demonstration make pace whenever you guys kcmg it's always kcmg and the sunshine band for me yes uh, underst- should, underst- you should have said that's another one that's going to so be that, you, you'll hear that on the uh, on the world feed at the weekend um let's just go through a couple of other sports car stories graham if we if we may uh, dragon speed with some yeah. news for 2016 and it's it seems to be all good news yeah, I think, you know, it's not the, the last of these to come out, I don't think, but uh, Elton Julian's been talking about LMP2 for a little wee while now, and that plan is now coming to fruition. Uh, it'll be uh, an Orica 05, won't be the last time you'll hear of teams signing up for that chassis. Um, they'll be starting with uh, Enrique Edmond uh, and Frankie, Frankie Montecalvo with um, Elton Julian at Sebring, and after that will be a full season of the European Le Mans series. So Dragon Speed following in the footsteps of Crone Racing, a US-based team opting to compete in Europe. Uh, so, you know, that I think could be quite an interesting package. Nissan engine for that one. And uh, if you like, the first of the big announcements, I think, in LMP2 uh, for teams joining that class for 2016. Yes, and as you say, I don't think that will be the last one from that. Uh, We've talked about Justin Wilson, um, sadly, uh, and his uh, untimely death at the uh, also earlier this week. You heard about an absolute Le Mans legend, Eric Thompson, uh, also died early this week. Uh, two Le Mans legends, I'm afraid, John, because, of course, Eric Thompson, uh, I think, was the first... Um, guy that was signed up for the Le Mans Legends Club. He was, absolutely right. 95 years old, um, finished on the podium uh, back in the 50s as an Aston Martin Works driver. Um, But uh, what can you say? Uh, A life well lived there from Eric Thompson. The other big name, and apologies, this is slightly out of order in terms of what you were going to come to. No, no, that's fine. I know where you're going with this. Guy Ligier left us uh, this year and, uh, and, you know, a name that's actually meant a hell of a lot in the years where I followed Formula One closely. I was a big Jacques Lafitte fan back in the day. And um, and Guy Ligier's name, of course, after some years in the relative wilderness, we've seen those kind of little, um, you know, uh, micro cars, diesel-powered micro cars. With I, ju- I just tweeted some pictures from Austria the other week about the there new one that was out. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, latterly with the... Uh, the tie-in with Onroke uh, with the LMP2 Coupe, very pretty car, and now the LMP3 uh, car with the same moniker. Uh, the name back to the fore and back in race-winning mode. But uh, uh, Guy Ligier left us this week. And, and again, that's another name where a huge amount of affection coming out. Uh, very large number of particularly uh, French uh, motorsport concerns and drivers have Guy Ligier to thank in no small part oh, yes. for their start and, and for their career. And, and let's not forget a man, you know, who was successful beyond motorsport. I think from memory um, played rugby. All right. For the French second, uh, second 15. Um, and I've got a funny feeling. He was, a, was he a rower as well? Uh, yes, he, he was. But, uh, but you know, all round uh, sportsman. Absolutely. But there you go. Um, 
Joe Bradley is with us, Guy Ligier. For men of a certain age, and, and we are of that certain age, in some ways that was our golden age of Formula One. I particularly remember the blue, very wide-bodied, very flat, uh, blue and white, the Talbot cars uh, that had the huge engine in the back. Uh, the Jetans, of course, they were uh, the Jetan cars were also pretty fantastic. And the... Um... Ligier came into Formula One in 1976 with the GS5, which was this huge air with this huge airbox. Yes, air, but it was in the age of big airboxes. But this guy Ligier took airboxes to another level. It was the biggest up until the Spanish Grand Prix when airboxes were banned, which was a big shame because this beautiful, it was quite even though it was this huge thing that looked like a, a factory chimney on the back <laughs> of a back of a race car. It was a shame that they they banned them. Uh, a third into the season because uh, loved that, but yeah, Ligiers were uh, were a big were a big part of Formula One from from pretty much when I became interested in the mid seventies and right the way through. And you know, Olivia Panis winning the Monaco Grand Prix, uh, which was its final win for Ligier in Formula One. But the uh, Peroni Lafitte, uh, the seventy nine season started with Ligier dominating F one uh, when we thought that Lotus. And maybe even Ferrari were going to be the dominant factors. Lotus continuing their domination from 78. So Ligier was a big, big name in, in the very top level of motorsport. Yes, and one of those uh, one of those larger-than-life characters in some respect um, who really did lead from the front. Uh, he was the guy, he wasn't just the name above the door, was he? He was the sort of guy I've heard... Um, that didn't suffer fools, I think, is at the all. politest way. Never mind lightly. At all, not lightly, at all. Uh, a kind of a fierce sort of guy who certainly got the job done. and but Immensely loyal to people yeah. who you know had yeah. been with him. Yeah. Uh, he's he's going to be a big loss to the... And I presume, Graham, that the... Uh, I saw the ACO's... Uh, I saw the ACO's release earlier on, and I presume in France... Uh, I don't know if you've spoken to any of our French correspondents, but I, f- I presume in France that's been huge news in France, Guy Ligier's passing. Oh, big news. I mean, you know, for so long, the flag carrier um, uh, for French interests in Formula One, I mean, took on, I think, from memory, the assets of the Matro organisation when that uh, stopped in about 74, was already kind of building up his, um, you know, his presence there. But, uh, you know, through... Uh, both Formula One and sports cars at the top level. Second overall, uh, Alige in uh, at Le Mans. The the just lovely. The, the JS2 was it the coupe version with the 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 Cosi engine uh, in it. And you know uh, a vast range of of activities down through the years. Not without controversy no. uh, now and again, and not without kind of the politics beyond sports involved. But uh, you know a name that. You know what, John? We grew up with really, yes. and um, it's it, you know another life very well lived for sure, um, but uh, a name that I think will be missed. Okay, Graham. Uh, for the moment, thank you very much indeed. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsport. It's Series Ten, Episode Thirty Three. Midweek Motorsport. And if you thought that hour was packed with insights and comments, wait till you hear what's next. As we just after nine o'clock here in the UK, we'll continue with another hour of midweek motorsport. Keep the comments coming in at at Specutainment at 
at Radio Le Mans and your remembrances of Justin Wilson much appreciated on the Midweek Motorsport Listeners Collective uh, on Facebook as well thank you for all of those remember all the details to be able to donate to the two Wilson Daughters Fund are on there as well and we'll make sure that they get tweeted out again before the end of the night Uh, coming up in the second half more of the same plus Andy Prio it's all here on Midweek Motorsports Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com. Graham Goodwin and Joe Bradley, my guests this evening. Uh, no Nick Damon or Tim Gray, both otherwise uh, engaged. Uh, a quick thought, uh, Graham, before we let you go entirely. We'll move on to Formula One in the second half of tonight's programme. Joe standing in as our Formula One correspondent because he knows more about it uh, than almost anybody in fact between him and Nick they know more about it than is he's possibly uh, anywhere um, anywhere near healthy if I'm honest um, a couple of other sports catch <laughs> true uh, we spoke about DTM briefly earlier on Graham and uh, the we thought a couple of weeks ago that the Audi um, pushing off the championship contender scandal wasn't over. Indeed, that would have seemed not to uh, be so. And further sanction, as uh, in fact, I think we predicted uh, earlier on. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, they've broken the 11th commandment, which is everybody, um, you know, certainly in my line of work uh, should know, is thou shalt not get caught. And the uh, pretty swinging penalties, 200,000 Euro fine for Audi Sport and Phoenix Racing. Uh, Wolfgang Ulrich and happy 65th birthday tomorrow to Dr. Ulrich um, is uh, henceforth banned from the pit lane at DTM meetings during qualifying the race and I believe is also uh, banned from direct contact on the radio network. Uh, Timo Scheider is, uh, is excluded from the results that's confirmed for Spielberg, but it's also, um, you know, excluded from the Moscow Raceway race meeting, which I think is this weekend. In fact, I'm sure it's this weekend. And uh, the whole Audi squad loses the manufacturer points from Spielberg as well. So uh, I think a line is being kind of uh, drawn in the sand there. Much comment that, uh, you know, these things have happened before and perhaps there have been less swinging penalties. I'm afraid, guys, that's the peril. If you get caught out by doing it on live television, perception is, you know, is not a pleasant thing in the modern world. Um, What can you say? Uh, I think they have been caught uh, rather with their trousers around their ankles. Um, I can't disagree that it deserved sanction. Whether or not it's the correct sanction is not for me to comment on. That's uh, the penalty that's actually been doled out. The bit that I was actually referring to, John, is I'm waiting for confirmation, but I believe it is highly likely that Nicky Team might be the man that steps into that car this weekend. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting choice, isn't it? Very interesting choice. If uh, confirmed. If yeah. confirmed, yeah. Uh, Black Swan, a uh, bit more GT3 Ooh. news for the States. Well, I mean, I think quite significant GT uh, news for the States. Uh, news broke a little earlier uh, this evening, uh, Tim Pappas, uh, back to the IMSA family. We've seen him there time and time again. Porsche, Ford GT, 
a GTC Porsche as well as a GTE Porsche, uh, the briefly in the Lola, of course, an LMP2, and now coming back to the newly reconstituted GT3 class, GTD class uh, next uh, season uh, with a brand new Porsche 911 GT3R and Nicky Katzberg. Uh, now, not the first quick Dutchman, of course, that Tim has campaigned in uh, in IMSA competition, uh, previously drove alongside Jerome Bleeker-Molen, metaphorically, of course, otherwise there's a bit of a weight disadvantage, two blokes in the car at the same time. But uh, that, I think, will be a force to be conjured with. They can't confirm at the moment that campaign. They can just say that's for intention. Because, of course, the entry has got to be confirmed by IMSA. There's an expectation of quite a large influx of GT3. Why do I think it's significant? Because there's not a single word in the press release about that effort uh, having a parallel campaign in the Pirelli World Challenge. And, of course, that's where Tim currently campaigns. And that must be the, the nightmare for the organisation behind Pirelli World Challenges. How many are they going to lose to a rejuvenated GT3 class in IMSA. Uh, yes, and I may not be the last uh, one we hear about that. Uh, we, of course, the the KPAX um, uh, Flying Lizard team withdrew from the event at the weekend up at uh, uh, up at Miller Motorsport Park. They did, and uh, quite quite an unusual on that one. That was the the team uh, uh, responding to a balance of performance adjustment. Uh, that was intended to adjust for, uh, in particular, for the altitude of Miller Motorsport Park, simply saying, we cannot make the car function at that level. We simply cannot do it. Now, there's been a bit of an exchange of correspondence, and publicly so, as well, around that. Um, I've had some conversations with both sides of the debate, and I have to tell you that uh, I'm afraid I think uh, that it's a bit of a mess up here uh, from the the governing bodies side uh, i believe there has been some uh, some advice about what was possible and what wasn't dispensed to pirelli world challenge from sro about uh, the turbo powered cars in particular uh, and you know what does that mean for the future of the capex flying lizards efforts mm. i think we're just gonna have to wait and see i think graham a, a very interesting response from marcus hazelgrove who we all know very yeah. well from his days at audi uh, a very measured response a very full response but clearly all is not well in that paddock and that's perhaps something we need to take up at, an, at another time really between the the lines john i'll say just yeah. this um i think the marcus's defense is a perfectly fair one yeah uh, i what i'm reading from one side of the debate on the other on the one side i'm hearing what we're being told by the mclaren capex flying lizard side which is on the technical front what i'm hearing from marcus on the other side is on the timeline and process front and i think that's where this has gone horribly wrong Graham, thanks for joining us tonight. See you on the road uh, tomorrow. Uh, I'll speak to you later on about meeting up somewhere, but uh, we will all arrive at the Nürburgring uh, in time for our TV broadcast. And, of course, we'll have a parallel radio broadcast as well here on RadioLeMond.com as the WEC gets back underway. But for the moment, Graham Goodwin, editor of DailySportsCar.com, uh, welcome back and thanks for joining us tonight. Good night, all. That's Graham Goodwin. Uh, let's move from Graham to another one of our favourites on this phone and say good evening to Andy Prio. Hello, Andy. Hey, John. How are you doing, guys? I'm very, very well. How are you? I'm absolutely great, thanks. I've just got back from uh, a long road trip back from Scotland. We've been in the RV and stopping off on the beautiful British coast on the way down. 
and I've literally just walked through the door, so it's good to catch up with you guys. We uh, we started off talking. Actually, before that, I should say, uh, uh, did you must have raced against uh, Justin Wilson at some stage in the past? Certainly, come across him in in paddock yeah. somewhere. A, a word about the big fella. Oh, I mean, we're just devastated here as a family, you know. And uh, I was just, you know, from the moment we heard or saw the accident on TV, I I just knew, you know, that it wasn't going to be great. And we're just devastated, you know. As a little family, we also like to to tour around in the RV very much like Justin and, and, and Julia and uh, you know I can only imagine what his uh, beautiful children are going through right now and his family and uh, yeah not a moment of the day's gone by without thinking or at least the last few days anyway since we heard the news without thinking about him and fantastic guy I raced against him yeah in sports cars but he was just a year ahead of me you know in Formula 3 he moved on he was with Stuart Racing and and then I joined Formula 3 um, with with Promotechnia, but we've always been around together. You know, he used to live in Silverstone area, um, and of course uh, we used to go out uh, occasionally in the evenings. And uh, just a lovely guy. Bumped into him a lot last year in the paddock um, in the Tudor Sports Car Series, and um, always a big smile. Always a lovely guy. You know, tremendous driver, and uh, yeah, just just a great talent lost, I'm afraid. But um, you know, our thoughts, are, my thoughts, are just with his lovely little family right now it's just devastating it really is yeah i think you echo what uh, most of us are, are thinking at the moment andy um the the sport continues it is such as the mm. way of the world and in in fairness we always say at times like this that uh, that justin and his family wouldn't want it any other way they have no. their grief to to deal with and we'll give them the privacy to do that at least i hope everyone understands that side of things mm. uh it's we've Absolutely. been to been talking about how busy your season has been this year Andy with uh, jetting off all over the place it's been a while since we've even been able to catch up with you since the last time you and I had talked um, middle of the year season after a little break getting back underway and, and a decent return to form for you at the British Touring Car Championship uh, what a weekend or so ago I'm almost as busy as you guys at Radio Le Mans you know <laughs> a racetrack every weekend and uh, yeah it's been been good I mean the last well, the last four or five races in British Touring Car have been brilliant for me. I've been fighting for pole and uh, won, my, won my first race back at Croft. And over the last uh, four events, I think um, I've been the highest point scorer. And uh, it's really good, you know, nearly half a season down the road. And um, I think uh, a lot of positives there. But, um, you know, obviously sad that I've got to miss, uh, you know, Rockingham. But also uh, really excited to to, to be driving um, the Mark VDS car again, the BMW Motorsport car um, next, next weekend at Paul Ricard. So um, you know it's, it's a nice problem to have, John. You know, <laughs> just just uh, two two cars to play with. And if I could be in two places at once, I would be. But um, obviously, uh, you know, you know, BMW have been fantastic to me for many years, and I signed a contract with them at the beginning of the year. Uh, and and um, and obviously, my uh, priority has to go that way. But um, and I'm thoroughly enjoying the program I have this year. It's just awesome. So much fun driving the touring car, you know, the sports car, the Z4 and, and the American races. It's, it's awesome. Absolutely amazing. We, we talked about going back to touring cars at the start of the year and how potentially you had a target on your back as a multiple world and European champion, how the sporting side of things with the regulations, even the format of the weekend it, have changed so much since you have have been away. How have you found that, and how have you found the competition? 
I've absolutely loved it, and and I found the competition as expected to be very high. Um, I, I often use the you know the the, the, the phrase that, um, or should I say, the comparison. If you get one of the top MotoGP riders to leave MotoGP and come and dry, ride in British Superbike, they wouldn't win all the races. You know, these guys are real circuit specialists. They've been racing these tracks and cutting a groove in these tracks for 20 years. You're not going to steam in and, and just be the man straight away. The competition level, I mean, there's at least 15 guys that can win. The cars are really equal. And it, it's like a kart race, John, from the moment you get in. You know, it's, it's just literally nose to tail. And uh, really good fun. I mean, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Yeah, you're right. I've had to adapt to the to the rule changes, you know, the hard and the soft tyre and the format of the weekend and, and of course, how they judge that, you know, the racing and and each championship has its own way. And um, that's taken me probably two or three, maybe four races to, to get my head around that and really understand. I had the speed, obviously, we put it on pole at Brands the first time out, but um, we, we didn't convert always to wins. And, uh, and now, obviously, uh, I feel I've got the real rhythm there and the groove. And um, I understand how the races sort of breathe and evolve. And uh, obviously, you know, you also need to learn who, who to trust and who not to trust in the paddock, you know, in terms of driving, who you can lean on, who you can't. There's a lot to take on on board. But but I really feel like I've got, you know, got the rhythm. And as I say, the last uh, the last three or four races, I, I, I've outscored everybody by about 35 points. So um, I think the, the, the possibilities there in the future to, to challenge for, for, for the title. Um, and that's a, that's a really good feeling because it's a tough championship, you know, mm. and... Uh, you don't just storm in and blitz it. Even if I have won three world championships, it uh, doesn't mean to say I'm, I'm just going to rock up and, and beat everybody straight away. It's, it's, it's taken a few races to get my head around it. Yeah, it's it's not like uh, getting your, your air miles or your IHG yeah. rewards club miles where once you get to a certain level, if you get the platinum ambassador, you get one and a half times your points. It doesn't work like that when you're a world champion. Yeah. There's, no respect. There's no respect <laughs> in the paddock, I can tell you that. that you, you know, you may be checking in and getting a lot of respect for your for your loyalty, but uh, in, in racing, as you know, John, um, it's doggy dog on the racetrack. And uh, you, you know, as much as I respect everybody I'm racing with, um, we just want to win, and, it, and we're, we're fighting for our own careers and for our own families. So uh, there's there's very little respect once you get on track. Tell me a little sure. bit. Of, tell me a little bit about the the relationship that you've built up this year with Mark VDS racing this. Uh, never before seen in Europe, the uh, the GTE, the GT Le Mans version of the BMW Z4, as we would call it over here, Z4 from the states. First of all, about the yeah. car, you've had a you've had a chance yeah. to give it a couple of goes out now. Tell me a little bit about the machinery. Well, they're, they're a lovely team, a really nice team, very very high level. Um, operationally, I would say, you know, you could see a lot of a lot of guys have come down from F1, and uh, you know, they're, they're really high level operationally, very. Very, very enjoyable team to drive for as well. They they take the racing very seriously, but they're, but they're also a nice bunch of guys in in, in the garage, and that's really important. Um, the racing's been great, as I expected in ELMS. It's it's been tough, and um, we, we've had a little challenge over the first two or three races. Just you know, as, as always with top speed, you know the Z4 is a tremendous handling car, and uh, it, it it's you know been a brilliantly successful car. But we suffered a little bit with. Um, some of the long straights in the LMS, and uh, of course, you know, racing against seven or eight uh, Ferraris is never going to be easy. But um, we're getting there, and we, we're 12 points off leading the championship. There's two races to go. Uh, I think Ricard's going to be be tough for us, but um, 
But Estoril, I think, is possible to have a really good weekend. So I still believe we can win the championship. And uh, we've got I've got two great teammates. Um, and Henry Asid is a really good gentleman driver. Doesn't make many mistakes, and he's and he's quick. And, and Jesse Crone is is you know a little future uh, up and coming superstar, and he's mega mega quick and keeps me on my toes. So we've got a great little team, and um, I think there's there's a very good chance that we could uh, fight for the title. But we just need to find a way to. Uh, to close the gap to the Ferrari. We, we talked at the beginning of the season, Andy, about how you might settle in in terms of, of jumping between three very different types of, of BMW in three very different classifications with very different specifications. How have you found that yep. this year? And has it been easier or harder than you expected at the, the start of the season? No, I, I, I think, John, you, you know, it's a valid, valid point and... Uh, Definitely, at first, it was weird, you know, going from a you know, very powerful, uh, you know, high downforce GT car to, uh, you know, a relatively underpowered, very low grip, low downforce touring car. And uh, it has a very different driving style. And you have to drive everything on the edge. Mm. Um, now, if I take the style of GT into the, into the BPCC, I'll overdrive the car, I'll be locking brakes everywhere. Um, it just wouldn't work, you know. Tire would 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 literally fail, and after five or six laps, so you literally, it's a little bit like playing, you know, table tennis and then bag, badminton. You know, you still got to hit hit the ball, or you know, you still got to have a good eye for the ball, but you've got to drive you've got to drive the cars very differently. And I, I really have, I've got a feeling for the car now, and I know exactly what the BTTC car needs. And um, I work very heavily with my sort of feelings and my visualization and stuff like that, so I can prepare myself before I get in the car and, and knowing what to require from the car and what to expect really helps. So it, it, it has been um, an interesting transition, but you know, in the old days, John, they used to do all of this one weekend, they'd be racing Formula one and they'd jump on a plane and go and drive in a touring car. And I think versatility is something that's, that's really important for, for any driver outside of Formula one, to be honest, they need to be able to jump in anything and be quick. And, uh, you, you only get a few small opportunities in motor racing and you've got to really maximise those opportunities. So, so far it's been good and, uh, and I've really got my head around it. So uh, I, I must, must, be, must be doing okay. You must be doing all right. I talked <laughs> to Stefan Sarazan about that very thing end of last year at Fuji. Stefan does quite a bit of rallying, of course, and at a very high level. And in, in fact, he won the Tour de Course last year, European well, it used to be a Coefficient yeah. 4 event. It used to be a WRC event, of course. And mm. he was very forthright on, on drivers jumping out of their comfort zone and said he, he felt more yeah. people should do it. And he felt that people at the highest level, at World Championship level particularly, like the WEC, like Formula One, were perhaps a bit scared to do it in case they got beaten by Dave Miggins from Hartlepool that nobody had ever heard yeah. from before because well, they, were, they were a specialist in that category. I think um, you know, you, you know there's, a, there's a lot of truth in that. And you just look at guys like Joey Dunlop, for instance. He just loved riding the bike. And he raced in club races, and then he'd go and win the TT. Yep. And then the next weekend, he'd be you know, going to a little clubby in the back of the van. And he, he was a racer. And, um, and that's why I, I went back to British Touring Car. I mean, it was a big risk, but I'm a racer, and I just love the racing. And uh, I think there's a lot of guys could could really learn from... from uh, jumping into different vehicles and and i think it would be very good for their driving but you're right unfortunately these things are very commercial and these things uh, obviously 
people, uh, whether that's teams or fans, are, are hugely judgmental. And motor mm. racing is, and everything in life is transitory. You know, fame is transitory. And uh, if you, one minute you might be winning a Grand Prix, and the next weekend you're driving in a touring car race, getting getting your ass kicked. It doesn't look so good. But <laughs> at the end of the day, if you love racing, you got to do it, and you got to be immune to the judgment and go and have some fun and, and race hard. And uh, and I, I just want to race for for as many years as I possibly can. So. BTCC gives me that opportunity, and so does uh, GT. And uh, yeah, I'm not afraid of, of the judgment. So I just look forward to uh, in, enjoying that sort of fantastic feeling when you're sat on the grid and it's all down to you. You know, the, the team have uh, wished you luck, and um, you, you're in your own com- you're in your own world, and that is just yeah. an amazing privilege for any racing driver, to be honest. Got a lot of fans of your root sport, hill climb, listen to midweek motorsport. We get lots of video, particularly the European stuff, which looks even more scary than the stuff that we do because they tend to go on for minutes and minutes and minutes, not just the yeah. short blasts up the hill. That's where you started. How how many more like you are there in, in hill climb that we've, that, you know, the wider motorsport world haven't heard of, Andy? I, I know. I mean, you're right, John. Hill climbing is an amazing, uh, it's a very dangerous sport, to be honest, but it's an amazing, instinctive sport. I mean, you can imagine at Shelsley, now they're doing 140 miles an hour in the crossing, and there's just literally inches either side of you before you hit an earth bank. Um, the thing that I loved about hill climbing was you, you had cold tires, and you had to be purely instinctive. You know, you turned in to the first corner, and the front tires were cold. And the guy that had the most commitment and the most feel for that and the most confidence was able to win. And um, that gave me great, um, great skills for, 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 for one lap, the first laps in the race, for, for driving in the rain. It was purely instinctive. Um, and I still, still fall back on those routes now. And, uh, and I think, you know, look, looking like, look, look at the guys like Sterling Moss and Nicky Lava, they also started in hill climbing. So many years ago, it was seen as a route through to, to bigger and better things but nowadays it's it's just um it's a you know it's a very niche sport but it's absolutely fantastic to watch i watched the, the national hill climbing guernsey uh, only a few weeks ago and and these cars now have got so much power so much downforce and the guys at the top have got bags of commitment so uh it would be great to see them have a chance but mm. it really is a very different style of driving i had to learn completely all over again how to to race a car. I had lots of car control and, and I could drive the thing really quickly, but actually the racing line and the technique and the rhythm and the flow and all of these things needed to be learned and it does take time to adapt. When do you bring all those skills back to the American series? Do we see you back in uh, the IMSA Tudor series this year, the IHG Rewards yeah. Club BMW? Absolutely. Thanks to, um, to Turner Motorsport and, and all the guys from IHG. Um, I've got a chance to race out there again in, uh, in, in Petit Le Mans, which is a, an amazing event, and I know you'll probably be there. Um, so I uh, can't wait. And um, really miss the US. Had so much fun out there last year. Some amazing tracks and uh, and a, a lovely paddock. So I can't wait to get back out there and, and do Petit, and um, you know try to uh, keep my keep my face out there, um, you know, nice and visible, just in case. Um, some opportunities arise in the future. So really, really uh, excited to be doing that race for, for, for uh, Turner and for IHG Rewards, Rewards Club. So uh, just a few weeks to wait now. 
and we wish you the best in that. Probably a bit early to start talking about next year, but we'll get your thoughts on that the next time we speak to you, Andy. That might well be at Petit Le Mans. Well, All the best at Ricard. Uh, it'll be uh, Johnny and Bruce covering that uh, for us and for the uh, the series TV down yeah. in the south of France in a couple of weekends' time. Enjoy that, mate. Best to join the family, and thanks for joining yeah. us on Midweek Motorsport. Thanks, guys. Great to, great to speak to you as always. Thanks for your fantastic support and coverage. Brilliant. Cheers, guys. Andy Prio joining us live this evening here on Midweek Motorsport. Uh, literally just back from his halls. Good to catch up with uh, Prio's Racing Diaries, as the press seems to have been this year. The only one I know who's got more IHG Rewards Club points than even me. He's been everywhere. Let's catch up on a few of the tweets. Still got just over half an hour uh, to go. A lot of people... Uh, thanking Marshall Pruitt for his article and for his words tonight and also Graham Rahal's uh, audio. That came from Marshall as well, by the way. So uh, thank you very much uh, to marshallandracer.com for letting us uh, use uh, that. We will be replaying this programme and there'll be a podcast as well if you've joined us uh, late. Victor Rod says, uh, Victor, Victor Rad, excuse me, Victor, says the Audi penalty was fully deserved, could have even been a bit harsher. This was the uh, the taking out the, the uh, what was it? It was the, uh, it was the billiards move, wasn't it? It was a cannon, uh, a Benz billiards move uh, with the two Mercedes being pushed off. Eric Rude ask, asking if Ryan DL is racing WEC or PWC. This weekend, he will be at the Nürburgring, uh, as will Graham and I. Uh, the uh, Emma Crawley, I owe an apology to, and to everyone um, who isn't men of my age, but are ladies of my age. Uh, late 70s, 80s, 90s was my era of F1 too, says Emma, and you are absolutely uh, right as far as that is concerned. Chris Suku, on a remembrance of uh, of Ligier, Joe Bradley, and you'll remember this, Jean-Pierre Jarrier not allow, allowing the leader to overtake days before team orders were really thought about. Do you remember that one? Where was that? I can't remember, but I have it in me in my mind. I have to say, Chris and uh, tweet us back in. That was quite common, though, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Was really common in those days. Just completely yeah. ignored. No blue flags, no, none of this. Well, even if there was, you know. You, yeah, even if there was, yeah. Even if the, the pit if board you, went out and said, you know, some kind I, of... I may be a backmarker, but I'm in this race. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I've just retweeted the details on at Specutainment for the Justin Wilson T-shirt. It's at uh, shopims.com uh, if you want to get on there. Ryan Provost says... Um, will we be at the Nürburgring this weekend? It will be uh, now. It's a bit of a change around this weekend because we've got Super GT as well, if I'm not mistaken. So it will be Johnny and Sam on Super GT for us at Nismo TV. It will be Bruce and Trusses for WEC and Graham and I doing quali in the race for the international TV feed. Uh Yes. Uh, keep the uh, tweets coming in to at Specutainment. Uh, the beautiful GS31 from 1988, Emma Crawley. I always remember that. It was beautiful, but completely useless. It was as well, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, just proving that... Then it became Prost, didn't it? Yeah. Just proving that good-looking cars are never always quick. But um, quick cars are always beautiful, aren't they? Usually, yeah. It is if you've just Usually. won championships. Have them, have them. 
And uh, good to see that I've just seen this being restreet. Simon Strang. Strangy, I've known for a long time. He wrote a very, very good orbit to to Justin. And the cover of uh, tomorrow's Autosport here in the UK will be that of Justin Wilson with a black border. Uh, he said the very least we could do for an old friend and an extraordinary man. And Chris Suku, um, giving putting a smile back on our faces, saying it was Jarry in every race that held up the lead. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, let's talk about F1. While we're talking yeah. about that, it was it was end of the F1 break as well. Joe at the weekend off to Spa Francorchamps, uh, always a great place for the F1 circus to reside, and a race that without the two Mercedes would have been far more interesting, but. I don't think anybody expects anything different. She's saying last week that she couldn't see anything other than actually what happened happening. It was Hamilton once again with Paul and uh, another victory, proving, I think, as we said a couple of weeks ago, that the only person who can beat uh, Lewis now is Lewis. I think if he keeps his mind right, he's got another championship pretty much in the bag. The talking point over the weekend, there was two major talking points uh, over the weekend in terms of um, of things not off the track, but not necessarily related directly to to the racing. The first one was track limits, and related to that, the second one was tyres and punctures. Mm. Uh, we had uh, Nico Rosberg losing a tyre in Friday practice, very scarily, didn't hit anything. Piece of the uh, banding seemed to come away when you see the replay. Quite a remarkable thing. And then, of course, during the race, Ferrari and Sebastian Vettel uh, losing a tyre with, what, a couple of laps to go and losing a podium position, which Romain Grosjean uh, gratefully snapped up for the in-financial difficulties yet again. Lotus team um, can't get confirmation on the reports that some of their vehicles and cars were seized at the end of that race. Litigation from... Charles Peake, though, wasn't uh, it? Yes, I think so. Rather than non-paid, not paying bills. It's all very convoluted there. Um, your thoughts, first of all, let's uh, let's take the the Rosberg thing because that was that was quite worrying. Um, a, a tyre that hadn't had a lot of work in practice, but uh, basically just came apart and the uh, the tread came off. It's, it's always hard to say how these things Absolutely. work, uh, how these things are happening in front of us because the tyres literally explode, don't they? And it's hard to judge exactly whether it's cause or effect. You know, as the tyre delaminated because of it, it's been put together wrong or has it incurred a cut or damage from going off track. Um, track limits weren't really pleased at all were no. they i mean well, well they put the sausage curb in at the top of well, uh, that was that was I, I found that a ludicrous idea from the outset because why? that's just a launching ramp well no point. but you shouldn't be anywhere near it well yes but then come on we, we, we've been talking about keeping this sport safe all night if you go off at monaco you hit the armco i remember i remember being part of the metro center kart race back in 1991 and the man called derek ongaro who was from the MSA, who was the actual man who started Formula One races in the, in that days. He was the Charlie Whiting of F1 yep. in, the, in that period. And I remember uh, a pedestrian barrier on the inside of a corner and a normal road-going curb. And I said to him, what would you like us to do to protect the, the, the curbing, the, the carts from hitting the curb? And he said, well, isn't the, isn't the art, isn't the, the object to stay on the track rather than go anywhere near the curb? Well, that, that the is... curb's fine. And that's kind of your logic. Many here, drivers, isn't it? though, will say to me, including 
uh, Rob Bell, who talked to us recently about this, Darren Turner, Alan McNish has fairly uh, strong views on this, is if you put tarmac there, somebody's going to use it. Absolutely. If there's Absolutely. no consequences. Yeah. Now, yeah. Nick, uh, at the weekend, Jim Roller coined a phrase about VIR that I told him I was going to steal, and I'm going to steal it right now and use it now. Consequence without catastrophe. Right up to the edge of the asphalt service, the pavement service for the track at, at VIR is grass in most places. There's a little bit beyond the kerbs in one of the corner, one or two of the corners because that is exits of corners, particularly slow corners, people go wide and they just bring dirt on the track. So it's been extended and people, of course, are using it. However, at the rest of the circuit, it's big areas of grass runoff and lines of tyre barriers before for the most part, before you hit arm core with tyre barriers in front of them as well. There's some places where the arm closer is closer than the other, and if you go off there, you're going to hit the arm core, but it's still protected by by tyre barriers. Consequence without catastrophe. At Spa, you go off at Puon, you just keep your foot in You've and drive all the way around and come are, back on again. There are parts of, parts of the track at Spa, if you don't go over the kerb, you are going to disadvantage yourself. Uh, there's talk of the car being off the track. I, I heard commentators, uh, I'm not saying which coverage I watch, but I heard commentators saying, uh, seen a car going off, and did he disadvantage himself? Or did he did he get the advantage? Of course you get the advantage on the exit of a kerb, on the exit of a corner going over the kerb. Of course you do, because you, you're continuing the momentum through the, through the turn. And if you were to try and avoid going over that kerb at the exit, you would have to check the car. And and, co- and and slow the car down effectively so that you didn't slide, get, you know, continue that momentum from the entry to the corner, through the corner and the exit of the so corner. So that's cheating then, isn't it? Well, it, I suppose, yes, technically speaking. So why aren't they getting penalised for well, this? That, rotation, uh, rotation up north. Uh, good to know you're listening tonight. This weekend proves that F1 has no integrity left. These are his words, not mine. It will be many years before I watch again. Given that... Track limits were so intensely policed at places like Silverstone and Hungary earlier in the season. Why the complete disregard at Spa? Well, you only have to go. You, you, this is this is Formula One, arguably. Let's not get into that debate. Is the top level of our sport, and you only have to go to a club event uh, at, at a track anywhere in the UK. Mm-hmm. And people will be penalised. You go and drive your Formula Ford and put four wheels off the curb over the white line. You will be pulled and you will be penalised. In certain places, you don't even have to do that. If you drop your wheels off a curb and onto grass at some That's places, right. yeah, you, you'll get a black and white standards flag. Yeah. And you know what's good is if you get then told where it was. In the WEC, for example, the um, the flag in the cab system that Magneti Morelli has developed along with the WAC, you get a black and white flag and it says track limits at turn 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, whichever one it is. Right. And therefore you know it and the team knows it. And, you know, we've all done it. My most recent race when I was in practice, I dropped a couple of wheels off a curb, uh, not because I was trying to gain advantage, because I ran out of talent, frankly. And next time around, I knew exactly what I'd done. And I even looked at the marshals when I dropped my wheels off onto a bit that we'd been told in the driver's briefing, please don't use that part of the grass and that part of the circuit. And I knew I was going to get a black and white flag next time around. And sure enough, I did. So I modified my line next time around. Now, you know... By, by modifying your line, though, did you feel as though you were checking the car up? Did you feel but as it though doesn't you matter. slowing the car up? No, it, no, I'm asking you. Did you feel... Because 
Because the natural instinct of any driver, and that's why you mentioned Nishi there, saying that if it's if you can use it, you will use it as a race driver. Mm. It's because instinctively you may, you want the car to go quicker, and instinctively the feel is that by using uh, the track and more, you are going to go quicker on on certain parts. Yeah, there, if you put a wheel off on certain parts of some circuits, you are going to be disadvantaged, so you don't want to do that. But certainly at Spa, at, at you know the outside of um, Stavelot, uh, onto that run towards Blanchimont. Well, that's just um, been pointed out by Alan Prosser, the fabulously monitored Lanzarote camel on Twitter. Uh, remember the Audi getting launched at quarter when they went offline? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I accept. I don't, I don't think sausage curbs are the answer. Getting back to where we started. So do we think one. walls or pits full of piranhas? <laughs> Sharks with laser beams. Um, no, we, we we don't want circuits lined with walls. The, you know, we've got that with with our street circuits. But we we certainly need to find a solution to 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 not need a, a, a judge of fact to issue a penalty. The penalty should be in itself putting the wheel off. I remember going to Thruxton for the first time with Bob Berridge, who I was working for in Formula Ford, and we, we went round to the Campbell Cobb Seagrave complex, mm. and we started walking straight across diagonally rather than walking the track. And I said to Bob, I thought you said you walk on the track, that's cheating. He says, no, I'm going to check this rough area here because if I need to, I'm going to go straight across there. First lap, particularly. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yes. Yeah. If I need to, if I'm, you know, and that was in back in the mid-80s and there was no such thing as track limits there. It was just, you know, get round. We all know what the key to getting your fastest yeah, lap with Croft is as well, absolutely. don't we? Absolutely. Oh, I'll break myself. Had to go on into that egg. Exit road where the bar is and then come back. You're in third by the time you go past the right. apex of That's the right. of the last hairpin. No, I, right. no, I I understand that. So uh, what do we use? Do we use grass? <sighs> well, then I'll tell you. You know that we've got on major, on a lot of circuits. You've got um, concrete curbing, nicely painted, yellow mm-hmm. and red, blue and blue white, and whatever. Yeah. And then you've got a patch of concrete, mm-hmm. which is painted green. And the reason why we don't put grass up against that curb because over time, the grass and dirt wears out yeah. so that you then have a ridge and a drop. Mm. You go across the curb and, and the and wheel coming drops back on, and then come back on. It you takes the tyre off. Or you can flip the car over. Jason Plato or Clairvaux. In, yeah. Sort of, yeah. Um, yes. yeah. I was there so, when that happened. Yeah, I know. I know. It's difficult. I absolutely... I do think it's difficult. Um, I, I, I think there's a few on the Midweek Motorsport Listeners Connective who um, might take issue at the state of official, officialing, is that right? Official dumb in Formula One and FIA events because at Formula One at the weekend, the, uh, the some of the procedures were quite frankly, not necessarily in Formula One. I've been reading a couple of people's uh, uh, thoughts on that who are in the same uh, line of work um, shall we say? Uh, Andrew Dolan, by the way, says uh, it was 1983 Aus- Austrian Grand Prix. Jarier in the Ligier balled Tom Bay's Ferrari. Uh, Arnu um, took the lead from him. Cue rebuke from James Hunt yes. in the commentary box. Yeah, yes, I do remember it. That, that was that was a classic. Uh, and Alistair Darren uh, saying, yeah, not four wheels off in Britain, one wheel, and you'll be called. In. Uh, let's move on from that because we could debate that for yeah, a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Vettel, um, he has, I think, been transformed this year in his driving and in his attitude. I always said we'd need to see 
when he left Red Bull to see just how good a driver he really was. The same as I said about Hamilton leaving McLaren. I think they're both very good drivers. Uh, there was an outburst. There was a sweary outburst on the BBC. Um, and, and I'm going to talk about swearing uh, in a moment, actually, because that's another topic that's come up this week. Uh, he felt it was unacceptable that any tyre should ever go down of its own accord, ever in the history of ever. I was... I was really, really, really disappointed with his attitude after the race because the way I saw it was, you know, a round of applause. Even when his tyre went, even when his tyre went, I thought, hmm, bad luck, mate. They rolled the dice. The one-stop strategy got them onto the podium. It nearly got them there. They missed it by a lap and a half. Tough. Bad luck. Good try. Worth the gamble. But then he starts blaming... Um, he starts blaming the tyre manufacturer. And yet they were really stretching the life of the tyre. And yes, he was saying that the tyre had deflated because of a problem with the tyre. Um, and yes, we can debate again the fact that he was using more of the off-track than he was perhaps required to by the regulations. Um, but if you are extending the life of the tyre... And, and taking that tyre to the very edge of its lifespan and risking running out of tread and putting it down to the canvas. Whether that was from setup or I would imagine they were, they were going to be using a very delicate setup so as to not uh, take too much out of the tyre so that they made the tyre last. But if you are going to then take that tyre to the very edge, surely you should be driving with that in mind and not ragging it over curbs everywhere you can. And, and maybe driving a bit more conservatively, with especially towards the end of the tyre stint. And I, I just thought it was really petty um, and petulant, really, um, of his attitude of apportioning blame to someone outside of himself and the team. And it was um, poor Paul Hembry at uh, Pirelli. He just, you know, his spin, he should work in politics. I had a long... And listen back to our IMSA coverage at the weekend. Uh, by the way, over on IMSA.com uh, at the moment, if you would like to uh, catch up on the state of the series, uh, that's playing on fairly heavy rotation with some other IMSA, uh, on the IMSA radio, excuse me, on the player on RadioLamont.com. That's playing on heavy rotation uh, with a couple of other bits and pieces from there. And in fact, following this programme, we'll have the Continental Tire Sports Car Challenge Race, which was an absolute cracker uh, for you to listen again to uh, here on RadioLamont.com. Uh, talking to a couple of tyre engineers at the, uh, at the race at, at Virginia, at VIR at the weekend, and had a long chat um, with one of the... Um, Michelin engineers on the air. He was very good, Ken Payne. And in common, and, and it's, it's not just Ken, it's not as if I'm just singling out Michelin, but all of the tyre companies in every sport around the world, every part of the motorsport around the world, give up a, give out a detailed setup sheet for temperatures, for caster, for camber. You'll have got that when you were racing yeah, yeah, touring cars, yeah, when you were absolutely. getting Clio's. How many times did you completely disregard that and do something massively different and push your luck and got greedy on camber particularly? few times yes 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 how many times did you lose a tyre because of it and then complain to the tyre company um i never complained to the tyre company if we if we were going to step outside of the the limitations what we're being advised on then we knew exactly the game we were going to be playing mm. so you would never blame you know you would you would never go to, to blame dunlop if you, cause, cause so if you went three or four three or three or four percent 
perhaps, or even a couple of three degrees difference on your camber, more on it your would, camber. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be quite as much as that. It would be maybe half a degree more or a, or a degree more. That would, you know, towards the end of the race, you'd really be worried about doing the inside uh, corners, doing the inside of the shoulders, you know, yeah. the shoulder of the of the tire, um, which was main. You know, that that was the main concern. Um, but if it didn't work, then you knew what you were doing. You know, the 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 tire guys would the tire guys would know exactly what you'd done. Well, you know, if you run out of petrol because you've taken a flyer, do you complain to the fuel company that you never got the mileage that you might have thought because you ran the car a bit that, richer? That's a great analogy, John. That that is exactly what Vettel's argument is based on here, isn't it? They were told by Pirelli it was a two-stop race. They yeah. were told not yeah. to go over a certain kilometerage mileage on the tyres. They pushed their luck. They rolled the dice. Good luck to them for doing that. I don't have an issue with that, provided they're prepared to stand by the consequences. But if you don't, if it goes wrong, then you, I, I, who, I, who are you going to blame other than you chose that? I lost a lot of respect for Vettel. I've always, I've always, uh, I've always supported Vettel, and uh, always had an argument with Nick usually on this show about uh, how how good I think Vettel he, Vettel is. And I think last year he got. I think he perhaps got bored or he just didn't have the because the car was off the pace and he just caught you know being successful as they were with when he was with Red Bull I just think he got bored with not being successful so when he came to Ferrari that was the the, the new motivation what he uh, what he's needed and and his driving's been better uh, perhaps arguably better than when he was in his Red Bull um, however that outburst at the end of the Belgian Grand Prix in the way that he tried to apportion blame away from himself and the team was just very immature. Um, he would have he would have gotten a lot more respect from me, and I'm, I would imagine a few others, if he just turned around and said, "Well, you know what? We pushed the we pushed the limits. Mm. Didn't work. We were close though, weren't we?" Yes, exactly. Um... Carol Brink. Hello, Carol. Got the BBC over in Monterey Bay at the moment, filming Whale Watch, not quite really live. If Vettel had complained about tyres uh, with Nico's accident and not later because he'd had a failure, it would seem less whiny. Now, in fairness, it was brought up to Charlie Whiting's attention uh, after Nico's issue, when Nico was you know, saying black was white, that he hadn't been off the circuit. Um, Andrew Mather has come up with something. A lot of people saying, what are we going to do? It, big sausage curves. Got to have consequences. You can't just drive on. Has anyone ever thought of some form of hard surface that just has a massively different coefficient of friction? Basalt tiles beyond curves for, say, a car's width. That would punish anyone taking the mick, and then you could have a tarmac runner for safety after that. That's Polished. a... Polished marble. Well, it, I mean, nowadays, I've been to places before where you've had tiles that replicate ice, so you can yeah. ice skate on yeah. them. There's got to be something. That's, that's a great idea, isn't it? Well, it, it's kind of what we. It's kind of why we ask. We ask for grass because grass doesn't give you much grip. And but then doesn't wear either. And, but but you know, polished marble or, or whatever, then great idea. Mortis Madman says, I bet we get far more penalties discount when we're racing at Spa and MX5s this weekend. Uh, next weekend, rather. Exactly. I'm f- I'm very envious, for, by the way. Um, Hope you've got a good engine in that, mate. Oh, yes. <laughs> kind of needed it, Spa. Uh, is this the same Vettel who blamed Pirelli after he ran the tyres on the wrong side of the car in 2013? Mark Thorne has a very good memory. Yeah. Well yeah. done for bringing uh, that one on. 
Um, there, is there an assumption that everyone has a little contingency that can be taken back, says Nick Holland? I think that's probably true. Um, I propose a fenceless shock system for drivers like people use for their dogs, says Adam Green. <laughs> well, like a collar. Like a collar around the driver. Yeah, something around their wrist. Yeah. So that if they go off, they get a little get buzz. A little zap. And the more time they go off, the more... T- well, you know what you could do? That's a great idea. Have you ever been to an arrive and drive karting place where if you keep taking a shortcut, they hit a button and it strangles your cart for half a lap? Why don't do that? On a straight, where it's safe. That's a bit like iRacing when you go off and you've got to slow down. Yeah. You, if you go off the tra- track limits, yes. you, you, you get a slow down and you've got to slow down or else you get black flagged. Yeah. And you've got to come in the pit. So you slow down. With a big orange light and on the back of the And you choose when to slow down. Because I think if you're coming out of a corner and you get You can't a, just check you up. Get a, yeah, check up. That's that's going to be uh, cause a problem. But mm. you've, you've got... Uh, yeah, that, that's a thing. Uh, Rob Jayner says, Pit of crocodiles or electric fence... But I do like the shock collar. It sounds more fun. Uh, <laughs> I think we should use for track limits, says Alan Prosser, whatever soap politician uses because nothing sticks to them. Something made of Teflon then, yeah. quite possibly. Um, as, as far as the rest of the race was concerned, fantastic start by uh, Perez. Uh, very nearly got to the, the front of the race. You mentioned the start, John. Remember that the double start. Big, big thing about the, uh, about the new clutch process you have to actually use uh, the clutch yourself yeah i mean <laughs> i know that it's a it's a it's a very complex mechanism now a clutch it's not as simple as perhaps your road car is if you if you don't drive if you drive a um a manual car um but wasn't the, the, the only person who was really caught out was rosberg wasn't it he went from yes uh second place to i think sixth place by the time they were on the kennel straight um but yeah, what a great! I thought it was a, I thought it was a crack and risk. I thought it was crack and risk. Yep, the Mercedes. Did you see how little TV time Mercedes got? Yeah. Were they in the race? I was thinking uh, that myself. Um, so the, the the thing about um, getting more exposure on TV then is to uh, run in the midfield. Uh, forget about winning. Mercedes are doing it wrong. They're going to get no exposure whatsoever apart from at the end. Um, but apart from you know, yeah, we've got Mercedes domination. We've always had domination. Let's not. Let's, oh, I like this. Go on. Nick Holland. Nick Holland says, disable the Super Mario flap. You know the pass flap. Yeah. For a couple of laps at Spa, that would be a disadvantage. That's a great idea, and that can be done, of course. Yeah, but if you are circulating yourself, and you haven't got you, the the pass flap is only going to come into into being if you're a second behind someone, mm. and if you're you know doing whatever and you're around no one, you're not going to be disadvantages at all after that actually do you know the answer to all this is just apply the rules as they're already written i've got an idea on the pass flap thing mm. um have a have a penalty flap that you have that to drive up with and, up all the time yes and it and it adds drag and slows the car down by about five k's on the street that is not actually as daft as it sounds because no. as we've managed to get a pass flap into formula one um okay. you could call it the penalty flap <laughs> careful i know um a, a lot of people liking the uh, electric collar idea, although some people saying it should be a bit lower than the neck. And Shea Adam saying, on the right foot, so it makes them lift and slow down. Double I work, don't right. think that's what was being speculated there. No, but Shea dragged us back from the brink on yes, that one. Thank I thought you, that's yeah. very good. Yeah. Uh, more of your thoughts on that. We'll pick up some of that next week when, uh, when Nick is back. Uh, suffering but a necessary decision. Uh, the structure is Sardinia's pride and joy. What am I talking about? Say that again. Suffering but necessary decision. 
The Autodromo di Sardegna racetrack oh. is for sale. It was announced by the ownership. Uh, it was built, developed and launched the efficient structure in Mores in the uh, province of Susari, north of Sardinia. The Sardinian track is an authentic pride and joy for the entire island, since it is the only structure suitable for plenty of different events uh, involving both cars and bikes, karting, etc., used by several manufacturers for research uh, and development. It was a suffering but necessary decision, says Omar Magliona, who manages himself the racetrack. We are hosting different occasions, such as testing and promotional events, perhaps to complete the effectiveness of our operations. We missed the support of a f- partner that could believe, as we do, in the racetrack's value. Uh, we hope that uh, who will come after us could have a wider marketing prospect for a full relaunch of a high potential structure enhanced by one of the most exclusive international locations very favorable to testing sessions and events uh, also in the winter season the ownership already received interested contracts about the sale some of which came before taking the decision but most certainly the present ownership will value uh, how and with whom proceeds in order to guarantee a certain future to sardinia's racetrack and look, that's a picture, isn't it? I didn't know Sardinia had a racetrack. That's quite nice. Neither did I. Uh, Simon Blankley's wife's from Sardinia, and he's there all the time. Really? Yeah. Is he going to buy it? I don't know. I'm here talking. I need to talk to him. It could be a, a, a fantastic... Uh, it could be a fantastic swearing. purchase. Uh, swearing. Swearing. Yes, this came up this week. Well done. The... Uh, the... Uh, lot of talk recently about swearing after Vettel came up again because we had uh, Rick Kelly on Super Fiat a couple of weeks ago um, swearing live on telly as well uh, with a lot of swearing when his engine blew up on his Nissan which the TV uh, came and stayed and kept stayed and although they'd cut off his radio they still had the interior mic of the car on so when he was going I'm miming that for Joe at the moment. Mm-hmm. You still could quite clearly hear it. Um, a lot of people trying to defend it. I do major training for drivers amongst uh, uh, many things that I do to keep a roof over our heads. And I always say never swear on the radio. There's two reasons for that. One, it'll come back and bite you. Number two, in most countries in the world, swearing and profanity over the airwaves is actually illegal and yeah. punishable. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes quite punitively. Um, the the other thing is it just isn't clever, is it? No matter how frustrated you are, you should be in more control of yourself from that. The other thing is that the convention on broadcasting is if somebody swears, you take the microphone away, you immediately mo- uh, apologise and you move on. And when I say apologise, you don't say if any of you were offended. You say we're really sorry for that use of bad language and then you move on you don't try and justify it because you can't and you don't try to explain it because you can't you get out of it and you move on otherwise you lose your job i have known now two pit lane reporters who have lost network tv gigs by not doing that and just carrying on and asking a second question after various swear words has have been used what did you used to tell your drivers about swearing on the radio? I mean, having, having been behind the wheel and knowing how intense that situation and environment is, I think um, today's standards, are, it, it's so much more commercial, isn't it? We have so much in, more intrusion now. Um, you know, we remember the days, John, when we were blown away by the Australian coverage of uh, their, their touring cars where we would go in car and have a chat with Dick Johnson. 
In fact, didn't they link the president up or something with Dick Prime Johnson Minister Dick Johnson and in the 80s. and the captain of the America's Cup boat? Yeah. All at the whilst Dick Johnson was racing in the then James Hardy 1000. That, that marvelous. These days, you've you've got to tell your drivers to be professional. And if you have got a camera and audio in the car, then you've got to be telling them they should be aware to act appropriately. I mean, what sort of people are they? You know, would they do that in the street? You know, would they if they if they lost their temper in the street, would they would they rant and rage and 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 swear in a public place? It's it's illegal to say the f word in a public place. You can be arrested. Mm. Um, certainly in this country, you can. Mm-hmm. Um, what would that be? That come under? Conduct likely to cause a breach no, of the peace? No, uh, it's no, no, no. Public it's order offence? Public order offence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Causing harassment, alarm, or distress. Um, See, you still got it. That's, yeah, so, yeah. It's been beaten into you um, in <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's not really acceptable, is it? It's not socially acceptable. It's not, uh, especially considering the audience that we have in motorsport. We've got, a, you know, the age range of the audience is, is such that I would hate to think that my... Ten-year-old uh, son, even though when he goes out on the street, uh, you know he's invariably going to hear it. You take your kid to a football match, you're going to hear it on the terraces and in the, in the stands. However, we need to teach our kids that it's not acceptable Agreed. socially to be using that type of language. Well, and I think they every say, they say that hear their idols doing that. Well, in football, in soccer. Um... Swearing at an opponent, at yourself or at the referee, is ungentlemanly conduct and you can be booked or sent out for it immediately. It never happens, but it can be. It also is, it's, the, for first offence, it's punishable by a direct free kick. So if you're standing in your penalty box and you swear at somebody, no matter where the ball is on the field, it's where you commit the offence, that would be given a penalty. But nobody ever does it. Well, it, you, it John, needs you, to be applied. You do see, you do see football. Right? I know we're, t- we're totally digressing here. We're talking no, about it's, football. No, it's about well, how acceptable about, it is talk, in other we sports. We see referees booking players and, you th- and you're sitting watching the match and you think, what did he get booked for? It's clearly dissent. He's clearly said something he shouldn't have. Um... And and it's it's down to how it's placed. If the if you're gonna not if you're gonna turn a blind eye, then it becomes socially acceptable. Mm. So it's down to the 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 the, uh, the officials to deal with it. Um, and it, I suppose it's down to not allowing that driver to have a camera or audio in his car. I'm sure his sponsors are going to be over the moon with that. Uh, hmm. uh, no time. Well, we sort of had a pointless press release with the uh, uh, with the. Racetrack for sale. Yeah, I thank thought that's you. what it was. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, joining us to that uh, and joining us tonight. And thank you for all of the tweets. They've been outstanding. Don't forget, if you go to the IndyCar site, you will be able to get all the details about the stickers and the T-shirts that will benefit uh, Justin and Julia's two little girls. Uh, final word on, on swearing uh, and then a couple of quick apologies before we go. Um Dave Volcock says drivers much appreciate they're not just drivers they're brand ambassadors for sponsors and self-control is vital Tom Fellow says apologies for absence fitting car uh, uh, fitting engine to rally car that is a great excuse and I just saw somebody else as well saying that they were setting off from Somerset to drive to Durham, I think. Yes, going to bed is leaving at 3am, says Mark. That's at Ruptured Duck uh, to drive to Durham from Somerset to pick up my Formula Ford. 
Well done, you. And what let sort us know. Of Ford? Is it a sixteen hundred? Uh, it doesn't say. I presume it's a, it's a 16. I suppose it could be a Z-Tech, couldn't it? Well, it's more likely to be a 1600, I would have thought. Uh, we need to know in the coming weeks, yeah. uh, Mark. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, there'll be no Tarantara for obvious reasons with the loss of so many great names from our sport that we've had to report this week. It's fair to say that there's no time to explain because the Llama is wearing a black armband tonight, as many as you, of you have been. See you next week. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.